Hey, what's up, everyone? You're listening to Faith and Capital, and I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. Today, we're actually going to start a two-part conversation with Dr. Victor Aguilon, who's a theologian of struggle. A, uh, he's a theologian, and, and the particular kind of theology that we'll be talking about in our second episode is called A Theology of Struggle, which is uh, basically an anti-colonial, anti-imperialist theology that's emerged from the Philippines. But the second part is the one that will kind of do the ins and outs. We'll talk about the ins and outs of theology of struggle in particular, and some of the particular insights that Dr. Aguilon brings about in some of his work. Uh, but this first episode is a contextual, it's a very necessary, in my mind, part of the conversation because we're going to talk about the history of colonialism, neocolonialism, and imperialism in the Philippines. We're also going to talk about indigenous, you know, the history of indigenous resistance. Uh, again, this is very brief. This is only an hour. Um, but I think Dr. Aguilon just incredibly brings um, all of these pieces together. So indigenous resistance, a revolution, communist organizing, as well as, and this is kind of like a, th- a third but important part, is the history of Christianity. And we'll, you know, we'll discuss colonial Christianity, some of the images of Christ for colonial Christianity. We'll also discuss images of Christ from a, a hybridized Christianity uh, that the masses basically, you know, took the religion of the colonizer, uh, but also... You know, took some of the tradition and turned it into something that was way more liberative rather than something that sought to reproduce their oppression and exploitation, uh, whether it was their their colonial condition or now their neo-colonial condition. Anyways, I think it's a, a really great conversation. And oh, and the very end, we we start to talk about a group called Christians for National Liberation, which emerges like in the 70s and 80s. And uh, it was above ground when it begins, but is now an underground organization. So again, I I think this is a really important part to to really understand uh, theology of struggle, but also to understand its, its importance and significance. And if we too want to continue to do good theological work, I think we have to take the history and the context and the, ma- the material and lived kind of experiences and lived realities of, of, of a people seriously. If we hope the good news will have anything genuinely good to say. Uh, so with that said, I will, I, I'll try and attach some of his work in the show notes. If you want to check that out after you ch- uh, listen to this first kind of historical introduction. And also the Magnificast has done two episodes on theology of struggle or Christians for national liberation. And I will add those in the show notes too. So that if you want to learn more about theology of struggle and the situation in the Philippines, well, you don't have to stop here. There's lots of other people doing excellent, great work on it. But all right, as always, thank you so much to the old and new patron supporters. Really does mean a lot. And if you've been listening for a while and you've been thinking about uh, chipping in a buck or two a month, uh, I'd really appreciate it. Just check it out at patreon.com slash faithincapital. Uh, you can, of course, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, all Twitter, all that stuff, too. Okay, y'all. Here is Dr. Aguilon, and let's talk about the Philippines. I started first as a community organizer of an urban community uh, after I finished my bachelor degree. Then after three years uh, in the field, in community organizing, uh, somehow I decided to jo- uh, enter the 
seminary. Okay, and this is a Protestant seminary. I belong to the United Church of Christ in the Philippines, a product of the American missionary work in 1898, you know, when the United States and Spain declared war because of the Cuban incident. <laughs> uh, I think Which it was will definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, okay. That's another story. That's the reason it's difficult to start with when trying to <laughs> background. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, and joining the seminary, finished an MD, Master of Divinity. And went back to minister, uh, handle a local church for two years. Uh, I'd like to mention also, I was a pastor's kid. My parents, my father was a pastor and my mother was a Bible woman or a deaconess. Mm. So I grew up in the church. Uh, and before you went to seminary, what kind of uh, community organizing were you involved in? Uh, the urban, uh, a resettlement community for urban poor. Mm-hmm. Mm, uh, okay. Then also work organizing some organizing the student youth sector. Excellent. And and, and, and now you're a professor, correct? Yes, uh, I'm teaching full time in Siliman <laughs> University. It's in the southern part of the Philippines, uh, meaning central part of the Philippines, and that's the Visayan region, Negros Island. Uh, mm -hmm. Specifically, Negros Oriental Province. Uh, the university where I'm working. Uh, was founded by the American missionary. Uh, I think it's the yeah, the first university founded by the Presbyterian missionary, uh, Presbyterian USA. Mm, okay. So I've been there for almost twenty, almost yeah, twenty-seven years, almost thirty years. I should also say that my first two years in the university, uh, I joined the union because we have a faculty union. And five years later, I took over the presidency. Okay, and been president for almost uh, since two from 1998 up to 2010. Yeah, 1998, 2010. Uh, quite a long. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Fourth, I think that I think that was equivalent to a four or four equivalent to a three terms. Okay. Wow. Uh, less than three terms because by law we are we can have there's no there's really no term no there's no term limits but I mm -hmm. decided that maybe after serving as president of the union the faculty union I think younger blood should take over the responsibility mm -hmm. but I still I'm still part of the union I somehow have difficulty of accepting administrative or managerial responsibility. <laughs> I have a reason for that. I, okay, yeah. uh, I don't like hearing managerial prerogatives. I don't like. Sure, that. sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, excellent. Well, I know I mentioned in the intro that we're going to talk a, a lot about context today. And so mm -hmm. before we dive into kind of like the context of the historical development of colonialism and neocolonialism in the Philippines, mm -hmm. um, we, we were discussing a little bit earlier why we think like this part mm -hmm. of the conversation is so important, right? Because I when I came across your work on a theology of struggle, um, I've, I've read several of your articles and essays now, and I, I think it's absolutely incredible and really, really important, especially for Christians in the U.S. to um, be engaging with and understand. But there's this really unique part about the theology of struggle that emphasizes context and not in just like an 
uh, solely particular kind of like this endlessly. Well, we're all like particularly different and disconnected, but actually there's a, there's a global system. Um, and then there's also the particular situation of the Philippines within that global situation. So could you, before we even start talking about the context and the historical development of this uh, particular uh, situation, could you tell us why kind of context is important for doing theology? When I tell my student and when I'm invited to speak to a group of lay people, lay persons, I always tell them that theology is biographical and personal. In other words, it's experiential. Uh, and that's where you should start from, your experience. Uh, but experience is not a solitary, something individualistic, or you experience it alone. It's just always experienced in the context of a community. You cannot separate your own experience from the experience of the community. And when you speak of the community, there's always a story to tell. You cannot, <laughs> you know, because that's what makes the community a community. You share the story or you become part of the story of the community, and that is historical. And context is really knowing the history of the people that you're working with. And, yeah. and theology is like that. And theology is, it's, and I think this is something that we really need to, we really need to understand. Uh, the, the, what we're going to discuss this is really rooted in the experience, not only of my experience, but the experience that I have gained from other people, the interaction that I have with them, and what I learned from them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and and I appreciate your emphasis on the the communal experience because uh, understanding you know where your work is coming from, there's this deep connection to kind of actual historical materiality, uh, right? It's 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 not as you said this individual kind of isolated. Well, this is how mm -hmm. I experience thing, and this is kind of how I individually interpret my own experience, but it's actually um, a deeply uh, materialist analysis yeah. of the historical context. Mm -hmm. It's I know it's it's really something that takes place in a I would say if I use a a, a a theological and biblical term is koinonia meaning fellowship coming together and it's always material it's always physical it's something happening in the here and now mm -hmm. uh, and <laughs> and and it involves all the different kinds of uh, you know. Uh, things that you experience together, the struggle, the pain, the suffering, the joy, and the celebration. Now, try to, try to celebrate alone. I don't know if you're going to enjoy it. And if you're in pain, uh, it's more, I think it's more painful if you're going to, going to suffer alone. Mm. And, and that's the reason why the communal context and the historical context is always, you'll always be conscious of the fact that, oh, there's always that learning experience, learning together. From what you have, what you have experienced in the past, and somehow it would also help you in addressing the uh, the, the present and uh, the future together yeah. again. Mm. Absolutely. And I have experienced that working in the union. I've been uh, when I was uh, working in you know, organizing communities, urban poor or the peasant. Uh, it's 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 not about you know it's not about me or about you know the so-called expert. Yeah, so called, you know, but rather it's about the community, about us working together. Mm. Absolutely, because it's hard to even speak of images of God or images of Christ or even the work of the church if we really don't know who we are. Um, and, and, and our understanding of who we are uh, needs to be grounded in kind of 
our historical development, right? How we got here. And, and so that's one thing I really appreciate about Theology of Struggle thus far. But today, this whole conversation is basically going to be split up into two parts. Um, this is, uh, again, folks, this is a, a, an episode for the context of our second conversation that we're going to have. And the first part is going to be on the kind of, it's an introductory history to colonialism, imperialism, and neocolonialism in the Philippines, as well as the um, the resistance that's been waged. And then the second part of this conversation will be on the context of, or the historical development of Christianity in the Philippines. So, Dr. Aguilan, why don't you get us rolling here? Um, could you could you start us off, yeah, with uh, telling us a little bit about the development of colonialism and now what is what is now neocolonialism in the Philippines? Um, and also the the counter struggle that's been waged for national liberation um, since the first colonizers arrived. Yeah, uh, it's you're going. It's like asking me to sh- to present <laughs> a the history of the Filipino struggle that yeah. it's still ongoing. Of course. That began in the 16th century. <laughs> that's almost 500 years. Actually, in this come this this year. Oh no, next year. Uh, the 2021, the Roman Catholic is celebrating its 500 years, meaning the 500 years arrival of Christianity in the Philippines. Yeah, uh, March, March 1521. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yes, and, and so just imagine you know, your question actually cover almost uh, 500 years of the history, uh, and <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> uh, but that's really the history of colonialism that the, what we have experienced here in the Philippines. I think uh, it's it it. It, it's in the 16th century, so it's the start of the mercantile era, meaning merchant and the voyages of discovery, you know, the search for precious stone, gold, silver, and spices. And this is part of the expansion of Western, uh, Western Empire, led by Portugal and, of course, Spain. And Spain somehow looking for a better, uh, you know, you know, a slice of the... Uh, of the spice trade, um, but Portugal was in control of the of a of the a specific trade route. So maybe look for a better trade route, and they would, you know, and 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 that would give Spain an edge. So Magellan, who was a Portuguese, offered his help to the king of Spain, and somehow he successfully proven that there is another path, and that was he circumnavigated. The world, and that's you know that, but the real motive is really economic. However, because Spain was the patron of the Catholic Church, so you, somehow they justify it using Christianity a way to legitimize what was purely driven by an economic uh, motive. Okay, the three G's: glory, gold, and God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, and you know that. Gold seems to be very good for the Europeans, but for the native, the indigenous population, uh, this is interesting. When when Magellan encountered the first Filipinos, meaning the natives, we were not yet Filipinos, you have to understand, we were not yet Filipinos. We were divided according to our specific ethno-linguistic uh, groupings. And the first encounter was actually treated more of a transactional encounter, an exchange, a barter. So it was really purely economics. Um, but for Magellan, it was not purely economic. It was a way of bringing the islands and the people into the sphere to Hispanic Empire. 
and the implication is different as far as the natives were concerned. Uh, though the native thought it was just for some, you know, a short visit, uh, just to exchange some goods, and after that, bye bye, go home. Okay, we agree, and you can come back, and we can continue the trade. But as far as Spain was concerned, no, this land belongs to the king. We claim this land. We claim mm -hmm. this. So you see, it's really a part of the imperial project of Spain. That's how colonialism came to the Philippines in the 16th century. Sad to say, the natives were willing to enter into a friendship with Spain, uh, with Magellan, and Magellan also introduced, you know, introduced a certain way of convincing that it is better to be friendly with the Spaniard rather than to make them enemies um, by first firing their cannons. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, yeah, they fire their cannons and they explain that's a way of greetings our new friends. <laughs> mm -hmm. And when they had the first mass, they also fired their cannon, meaning they use religious symbols. They also use their military symbols as a way conveying how powerful they are. But it's before they use the can, uh, the bayonet, uh, or they use force, they engage in some kind of a diplomatic rules by convincing one tribe, as you know. And I think it was also somehow they were convinced the tribe, uh, you know, one island, were convinced that maybe we can also use Magellan as a way of increasing their influence to the other tribe. Uh -huh. So it was really more of transactional, analysis, but not all. Eventually from one island would not agree to that kind of, you know, uh, that also led to a major confrontation between Magellan and the, in, uh, and, we, and the tribe of Lapu-Lapu from Mactan. And that is where, where Magellan lost the battle against the native. And somehow it, somehow it, it, it was a, an evidence that the Europeans were not that powerful if they can be defeated by uh, a, a, by the by the local population coming from another tribe, uh, and somehow by and because of that, the survivor you know managed to return to the first settlement, and you know the the tribe that entered to a friendly relationship initially entered into a friendly diplomatic relationship uh, with Magellan, plotted to to capture the ship and enslave all the remaining crew. Somehow, but they were able to send, uh, learn about it, and they managed to escape. But after, you know, causing so much damage to the surviving crew, and but it would have been a different story mm. if those surviving crews were actually captured and did not uh, were not able to return back home. Because if they were not able to return back home, they would not be able to continue the occupation of the Philippine archipelago. But it would take them 50 years before they would be successful in colonizing the Philippines. So from the time that they returned, uh, the Magellan uh, voyage returned to Spain, after they arrived there, it would take another 50 years, 50 years huh, before they could actually successfully pacify and colonize the island. Yeah, that's really helpful. That was helpful to, to kind of hear you talk about how different um, uh, indigenous peoples were they they thought about the Spanish colonizers in different way. They they wanted to relate to them in different way, and then eventually they were pit against one another. Yes. Um, 
as a means of taking over uh, the region. And I also think it's always helpful to to consider that you know what you said about it, it took basically 50 years. You know, some say it's was it was really successful in the sense that eventually the entire most you know the entire archipelago would submit to the Spanish authority, and that would be a very interesting an interesting way of looking how Spain with a very few men you know because it was not you know it was not enticing to you know to 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 travel or to vo- uh, to 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 you know to join the voyage to, to the Philippines uh unlike today you, you it only takes hours uh <laughs> during the time it takes months <laughs> mm-hmm. and the islands was really not developed so uh, you have it's it's hard work. You have to deal with sickness, homesickness, and and so many challenges. So those who really would like to uh, join the voyage, one seeking for glory, they are religiously driven, or maybe they're adventurer. Mm-hmm. Okay, and with and the one who really succeeded in colon in pacifying the island was Legaspi. Uh, but he came from Mexico. Mexico was already a colony of Spain, so from so, and and he it would take another that was to be in the 17th century, so almost 50 years after Magellan, and another 50 years before Legazpi would really pacify the islands. And here Legazpi had to have the support of the missionary, because they have a very few men. And the, but the missionaries were dedicated people. Uh, there were there was they the natives were host were very hostile huh, to the Europeans to the Spaniard. So they can control a certain part of the territory them near near their camp. But to leave the camp that would be you know because the natives has engaged in different form of resistance. You know first the confrontational and the the, the Spaniard had brought better weapons cannon which the natives were not you know were not prepared. Mm-hmm. So they had to withdraw into the forest, allow the missionary take over the the, the settlement. Uh, but the native continued to harass the colonizer. At the at night time, according to the report, they had to stay in their camp. Uh, yeah. But the missionaries were dedicated, and this is something interesting. Uh, There's something that we have to take note. Uh, even if there was an order that the missionaries can only leave the camp with an escort of soldier. Some missionary realized that the native would not approach the missionaries if the soldiers were were with them. So the missionary would actually escape the camp. Huh. Yeah, and a lot of or one one of the interesting parts about some of the missionary work done in the United States when the US was was expanding west was this question around like whether expansion should be used with force or without force. And some of the Protestants believe themselves to be nonviolent in their missionizing work, their missionary work. But there was always a military right near the camp. And so it's an interesting kind of blind contradiction that they didn't really see about, um, about the work they were doing. But if we could, let's go ahead and kind of fast forward up through the 19th century, where it, we le- it leads up to an 1896 revolution. And we actually just had a conversation on indigenous resistance and settler Christianity in the 19th century in the U.S., right? And as we know, at the end of the 19th century is when 
the U.S. and Spanish have an inter-imperialist war. But could mm -hmm. you kind of give us a lead-up to the first 1896 revolution and then yeah. take us into that, that inter-imperialist war? Yeah. Actually, the 1896-1898 revolution was actually, I would say it's really a recognition that the only way to put an end to discrimination and treatment of the native as an equal <clears throat> subject of Spain is to be is to declare independence from Spain. You know, the initial struggle was actually to be assimilated, to become a province of Spain. And Spain rejected that. No, you can never be you can never be a province of Spain. You 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 remain a colony. And as you and the, especially the Lustrado, the more intelligentsia realize that we have already been, you know, we, we can sp speak the Spanish language, we dress like the Espanoles, you know, we, we learn to mimic them, and yet we cannot be, we are not treated as equal. And somehow this, re uh, the realization led that if we cannot be treated as equal, one, maybe we can be treated as equal if we become a province, right? Meaning, eventually, if we are a province, then we will be l like the Spaniard. But mm. since they refuse that, there was only one way, and that is to declare independence. And the declaration of independence were actually led by the Ilustrado. This is the intelligentsia, and of course, supported by some clergy initially, it's Filipino native clergy. Uh, and successfully mobilizing some uh, many of the uh, peasant, uh, and the resistance was actually a mixture of of Filipino of different classes, but they shared the same experience of colonial oppression and discrimination. Somehow they they discovered that they have a common enemy, a common oppressor, and they have to join forces to throw out the oppressor, to throw out the colonizer. So in 1898, uh, though initially in the Ilustrado wanted it to be more, uh, you know, just just to be assimilated. But the more, I would say, the less, we don't have a middle class during that time. It's difficult to say we had a middle class. But we have a group or of of Filipinos who belong to what we call a plebeian class. These are like workers, a kind of a semi-workers. Uh, uh, they maybe they're educated but never earn any degrees. But they 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 work in a in in uh, in let's. In, because we are basically agricultural, but they occupy a certain supervisory position. Mm. And mm, you might say, so they, these were the group who eventually realized and took the initiative of forming an underground organization known as the Katipunan. Okay, and this underground, they, actually this group originally was part of the reformist group, La Liga Filipina. Uh, started by Jose Rizal, but Jose Rizal, you know, our national hero, uh, by just organizing it for a day, immediately, less than a day, he was, uh, less than a week, he was arrested by the Spanish authority. So the organization maybe lasted less than a week. And those who were more, you know, who, who realized that it's useless, it's a waste of time, 
uh, you know, to work openly and even uh, struggle for reform. Maybe what we really need, what the Filipinos need to organize was really an organization that would work out for for the independence of the uh, uh, of the colony. So in 1898, uh, in 1896, eventually the Katipunan was established and uh, they were preparing. They were preparing for the uprising. But again, the secret organization was exposed by through a confession. <laughs> mm, mm. Confession to a priest. Uh, and the priest violated uh, the, the cardinal rules that confession should remain sacred, but he violated wow. <laughs> wow. And the authority learned about it. And immediately the authorities started arresting several of the many of those who were actually, uh, you know, suspected and identified as member of this underground organization. And this forced the hand of the leadership of Bonifacio to launch his revolution. Mm. That's interesting. Uh, I, I was unaware of that. And, and that was a helpful kind of articulation of how at first the strategy was to try and become equal to the colonizer, right? Yes. To say, listen, the colonizer is always telling us that we are not the colonizer. And so maybe we should try and become uh, like the colonizer. But obviously the colonizer didn't want to uh, allow that to happen or mm. didn't believe that was even possible. And so that tension created an opening, um, uh, an opportunity for something, a different kind of strategy to come about. And, and instead of trying to become like the colonizer, there was a a full-on rejection of the colonial relationship, yes. um, a pursuit a through a secret organization starting off, sounds like by some slightly higher paid workers who had the means, maybe had a little bit of education, but could start to think about what it might en look like to actually end this colonial situation. Yes. Yeah, it's... Uh, but actually, that would also... I would say that would also the weakness of the uh, of the of the movement that struggle for independence uh the illustrado would still be holding on to the idea that maybe we can still work out with the colonizers get some 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 concession and while the more determined group led by bonipacio was really you know for them the only the only way to succeed and the only way prove that we can be equal with our colonizer is that we are no longer a colony the only solution the only way to end discrimination and we can become prosperous is if we are free from from the spaniard okay while on the other hand you have the ilustrado these are the landed groups they somehow benefited in the colonial arrangement uh, because you know some of them acquire property, they were allowed to uh, acquire lands, uh, and the production, the monocrop production, sugar, uh, coconut, actually gave them certain advantage, meaning and enabling the family to send their children to higher education, to schools, to university. They even enabled them to send their children to Spain for further study. So they were, they, in other words, they were better off compared to the, to the rest of the Filipinos. Uh, and this 
group were ambivalent. Should 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 we really demand independence or can we just find concession? Mm. And the leader of this group is Aguinaldo, Emilio Aguinaldo. Uh, so you, when you hear the word Emilio Aguinaldo and you he, hear the name of Andres Bonifacio, these are the two, uh, two, I would say, two direction of the revolution. One was willing to compromise. The other one was not and determined to really be free from, from Spanish uh, colonization. Okay. Yeah, that, that's excellent. And I think it's really helpful for you to, you know, you're parceling out that there are different groups with different material interests, right? Yes. Some some folks literally have nothing to lose but their chains, and they mm-hmm. would be more, way more inclined to saying, mm-hmm. uh, this has to end now, and, and how we do that is through revolution. And then there are other groups with who are actually materially a little better off, and yes. maybe um, they might have a little something to lose, and so they're way mm-hmm. less... Uh, way less kind of inclined to be all for independence. I think that's really helpful for us to think about. And and that's the reason when the American came, actually they entered into a peace agreement. They entered into a kind of a peace agreement with with Spain, this group of Aguinaldo. And not only that, Aguinaldo, even because they... They, 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 the revolution got into some kind of an infighting, internal struggle, because sad to say, one group failed to provide support when it was needed, so they, there was an internal struggle. So they thought that by asking the leaders of the revolution to come to the, you know, to resettle this conflict within this crew, between these two, uh, it would unite again the forces. So Bonifacio attended that conference, that assembly, but Sad to say, uh, I to me that was a kind of a coup d'état. Why? Because in that assembly, somehow that assembly turned into a reorganizing the leadership of the revolution, mm. and Bonifacio lost in the election. And because he lost in the election, the leadership was taken over by the Ilustrado. And but eventually there was a a suspicion that the that the election was was rigged. Uh, rig because it was not the original um, agenda for that meeting. Uh, mm. So eventually, Bonifacio said, "We better as this 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 assembly has no authority, so I'm dissolving this assembly." And you know what happened? Uh, so Bonifacio eventually had to leave that province, so he had to go to Manila because you know. But it was too late. There was already a coup. Uh, the newly elected, the so-called newly elected president, Aguinaldo, ordered that Bonifacio should be arrested, uh, charged with treason, undermining the new leadership, the new leadership of the revolution. He was arrested. Bonifacio and company were arrested. His brother and his wife, they were arrested. And sad to say, they were executed. Wow. Sad to say. And that actually, our revolution... <clears throat> should be something that we should really be proud, right? Mm. But each time we, when we talk about our revolution, we also have to discuss the betrayal. <laughs> mm. The betrayal mm. that, that, that happened during the revolution. Mm. So at the, towards the end of the 19th century, you know, in one of your essays, you discuss how the economy of the U.S., you know, who is fighting to become a, a kind of global world power, uh, is is needing 
some things to kind of help its expansion mm. continue. And this kind of compels the U.S. to leave it, you know, mm. where it's been, and uh, and just kind of North America, and then kind mm. of start to expand all across the U.S. or all across the world. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the inter-imperialist uh, war mm -hmm. and then the uh, Filipino-American War ending in 1902? Yeah, I think it's the United States was a late comer in in Asia in terms of colonizing. Yeah, uh, it's it was a, a it was an, a late comer. There was no American colony. <laughs> yeah, and and the opportunity came. Uh, when you know the opportunity came in the late 19th century, specifically 1898, when in 1899, when 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 the U.S. Uh, you know when the U.S. got into conflict with Spain, it started in Cuba. Uh, I think we have to and if you if uh, scholars have already identified that one of the key interest in Cuba is the sugar plantation. And there were several uh, tycoons, sugar barons, you might say, uh, American, who were interested in maintaining the monopoly. Okay. Uh, and, they, and, and Cuba was a major supplier of sugar. Uh, the Philippines was also a major supplier of sugar. It was beginning to be a major supplier of sugar. There were already American interests in some part of the Philippines, American and British interests. Uh, okay. So <clears throat> when the war broke out, uh, immediately McKinley uh, ordered the uh, Asiatic Squadron led by Dewey uh, to come to the Philippines because the Philippines was a colony of Spain. And since a war was declared against Spain, the Philippines was a legitimate target. Okay, it's a legitimate target. It's a colony. You have the Spanish Armada. Therefore, the enemy is there. Okay, mm. you send your battleship and attack the enemy. Okay, mm. uh, but I I don't know if you know this in your history. Uh, the Spanish Armada was feared in the Pacific because you know uh, Spain was a was a superpower. Uh, but when the battle took place in Manila, Dewey realized that he was fighting a very obsolete fleet. The ships were made of wood compared to the steamboat boat. Uh, brought by the way made of iron and steel. <laughs> mm, yeah, and just so everyone, just so folks know, Dewey is a an admiral uh, of the okay. U.S. Navy. So he, yeah. U.S. Navy, because he was actually bringing the Spanish squadron, the Spanish, oh, sorry, the American squadron. Uh, okay, they were docked in Hong Kong, and they came to the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And even without the support of the infantry, he had no infantry during that time. He had only the Spanish. Uh, he had only the American ship, and they came, and they came to, and they in in a in a less than a day battle, they defeated the Spanish Armada wow. in mm -hmm. Philippines. With no, so, and, and and Spain knew that they have lost the Philippine colony. They also they knew that they have lost the Cuban colony. And the next question now is, can can the United States hold on to the, uh, to the islands? Do they have the means to hold on to the islands? This was a struggle. This was a, a strategic problem from, for, uh, for Admiral Dewey. I mean, uh, it's considering that they don't have an infantry available. They don't have the ground troops. Now, they realize this is a problem. So 
they found a diplomatic solution. Ano, maybe not a diplomatic solution. They have, they, <laughs> <laughs> I would not say that. <laughs> uh, but that's the language that they use. Huh? Uh, they managed to learn that a group of Filipino exiled was actually in Hong Kong who led, who used to lead the Philippine Revolution. And this was actually the group of Aguinaldo. Aguinaldo entered into a peace treaty and part of the treaty is he would actually go into exile and he went to Hong Kong. And somehow they will learn about it. So he sent his emissary and they had some kind of agreement that he would bring Aguinaldo back to the Philippines. And, and hope, this- hoping the Filipino forces, he could rally the Filipino forces to continue their 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 fight against Spain, while DB would be or was DB would be still waiting for the American forces to come. Yeah, and this is an interesting part of you know not only kind of U.S. imperialism but also U.S. Christianity because there's this transition now from right the the islands are predominantly um, kind of a hybridization of. Roman Catholicism and indigenous uh, religion as well, right? But President McKinley is Methodist, right? The U.S. is predominantly like Methodist and Baptist Mm -hmm. um, uh, in this moment. And so there's going to be a flood of of now Protestant missionary efforts. And so, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about the relationship between President McKinley's Methodism, right? Kind Mm -hmm. of supporting for this imperialist advance yeah, um, I, I think it's it's important to uh, to mention also that when the United States learned uh, that you know the uh, the Spanish forces in the Philippines have been defeated and and have surrendered, McKinley realized that what are we going to do with the islands? That was a question that he was asking. What are we going to do with the islands? Huh? Uh, I think it's more of a question. Are we maybe they they he knew what to do with the islands? Huh? Because Senator Beveridge, an American senator, and there were other politicians who were already talking. Let's 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 take the island, so mm-hmm. that we can we can you know our our industries are producing so much. We need the raw materials. We need to sell our surplus products, or the 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 goods that we are producing. We need to sell it. So we need the islands. Let's grab it. But the problem is, the United States, you know, the United States has a history of you know of the struggle for independence yeah uh, the united states has this history of, of 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 a history of gaining its independence from from the british right so it's now a question for the politicians especially for mckinley if if the united states would grab the philippines then it would go against you know it would go against the the very ideals that the United States tried to project, meaning it was a it it fought against uh, against a British colony, and now they are going to become a colonial master. That was the dilemma of McKinley, and <clears throat> so he needs to find a higher justification if they're going to occupy the island. And he claimed that he had a uh, so there was a group of Methodists who visited him at the White House. And according to his account, he had a dream. He dreamt that God 
told him what to do. <laughs> he told him what to do, and and according to that, uh, he reported this to the group of uh, Methodist leaders. And according, God told him that if that the American is now obligated, meaning the United States is obligated to take the island. Okay, and why? Because one, if they would not take the islands, other European nation would actually take the island, and it's not good business. Second, if they take the if they do not take the island, the 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 the, the natives would you know would there would be chaos, there would be anarchy because they don't know how to govern themselves. So it's now a moral responsibility of the United States to take over the island and and carry out a kind of a benevolent assimilation. A, the land that phrase that they use is benevolent assimilation huh? it's mm -hmm. it's similar to the white man's burden uh, ideals meaning it's now our responsibility to civilize to educate and christianize these filipinos and this is what god is telling us uh, and yeah and between this period of the <clears throat> of the filipino american war um, and in 1930, when uh, communist organizing begins to happen under the leadership of Crisanto Evangelista, who's a Marxist-Leninist, right? There's um, there's the Russian Revolution, and that sparks um, that that sparks a, a hope and also an ideological hegemony across the U.S. or across the world, where people are starting to be, really take seriously uh, Marxist analysis and uh, Marxist kind of politics as well. So, could you tell us a little bit about? the emergence of communist organizing in the 1930s, um, oh. and also the particular role of Bishop Gregorio, I uh, think it's Labayan Aglipe? Uh -huh. Aglipe, Aglipe. Uh, Aglipe. Uh, 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 no, Gregorio Aglipe. Actually, Gregorio Aglipe, uh, a Catholic priest, uh, you know, joined the Philippine Revolution against Spain, and eventually also joined the struggle against the American. Uh, so he became the military chaplain of the Philippine army during mm -hmm. the Phil-American War. And maybe I have to mention, in that war, close to s almost 7 million Filipinos directly and directly were actually killed. Um, close, mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah, it's sad, it's almost, yeah, it's quite a, a very, it's a dirty war, the first dirty war that the American actually got involved to. And mm -hmm. I hope uh, and sad to say, not many Americans knew about this. The, it, and the war lasted for more than 13 years, from 1901 up to the 1913. Okay, but your question about the coming of the uh, communist uh, movement in the Philippines, uh, it was through the American. Uh, the communist movement came uh, it, it from the American. Why? Because the Communist Party, since the Philippines was part of the uh, American colony, so it was the American Communist Party that had to send uh, initial contact. Mm -hmm. And there were already people who were already, no, no, but even before the Communist Party came to the Philippines, we already, the Filipinos have already organized some labor groups. And this has, uh, uh, de los Reyes, Isabelo de los Reyes, who became a leader of the Philippine Independent Church, the Aglipayan, Gregorio Aglipay, 
you know, the the Aglipay Church was organized along with the a group of workers' organization, the Obrero. So the first, you might say, the first members of this independent church, the Philippine Independent Church, were actually a group of workers organized by Isabelo de los Reyes. And yet they were not yet communists. It would be in the 1930s when the Philippines became a commonwealth. When the Philippines became a commonwealth, uh, meaning somehow it acquired a certain, certain autonomy and yet still under the control of the United States. Mm. All decision must have a concurrence of the United States Senate. So mm. even if we have certain laws, it would still have to be approved by the Senate. Just like Puerto uh, Rico. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure about the current status of Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah. But uh, and because of that, somehow the the Communist Party, uh, you know, it, it when the Communist Party was organized in the Philippines, that would be in the 1930s. Uh, they had part of the international uh, internationalism of the communist movement, okay? Uh, and so the Soviet Union was a model during that time. It was the leading uh, state of the communist movement. Part of the understanding is that uh, to provide some support and guidance, it would be the Communist Party of the U.S. that would be a partner of the Philippine Communist Party. Uh, I mean, yes, the Communist Party in the Philippines, initially in the 1930s, okay. Oh. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I had forgotten that it was a U.S. American communist who who brought, like, writings of Marx and Lenin, correct, yes, to yes, yep. Evangelista? Yes, and Evangelista. So, before we, I do want to ask you particularly about the Christians for National Liberation, but before we get there, could you kind of take us a step back and talk about the development of colonial Christianity within the Philippines, and then also it's countered kind of more hybridized Christianity? Okay. You know, to discuss that, I have to discuss how the natives responded to the colonization started by the uh, Catholic missionary. Okay. They responded first with outright resistance. Okay. You're part of the colonizer, so we don't want Catholicism. We don't want uh you know anything we don't want a foreign religion that's the sign of the colonial religion we don't want it but the missionaries were dedicated this is something that we always forget uh this is the other side of you might say uh because the question is how come with a very few spanish soldier uh, spain managed to hold on to the island and i think this should be attributed to the missionaries the mm. missionaries the missionaries were were dedicated christian missionary but they were also loyal to spain they had a dual dual function and they were a civil servant they were also a servant of god <laughs> and this is the ambivalence that the missionary played uh, they acknowledged because of the patronato real so initially, the missionaries were a, a fair game in the resist uh, in the in the in in the resistance. Meaning, uh, they were kidnapped, they were targeted, they were ambushed, like any colonizer. Any mm -hmm. they're perceived as part of the conquistadores. Okay, but the missionaries were dedicated, and as I mentioned, they were willing to leave. They were willing to to uh, no, to uh, to escape their escort. So that they can be with uh, with uh, indigenous, 
And that actually proved somehow proved to the natives that the missionaries were different from the conquistadores, different from the soldier. And some missionaries were, I would say, really tried to practice what they were trained, uh, what they knew about the Christian faith, what they knew about some of the, you know, uh, work of charity. And they brought some of the, you know, uh, advanced medical knowledge, and they were performing healing using European medical uh, learning and somehow and this was perceived by the native as a miraculous act convincing that the native that they were more powerful than the indigenous healers and that opened the door so eventually out of out of persuasion and maybe out of a transactional analysis transactional relationship oh the missionaries are bringing something something beneficial to our community maybe it's better for us to to embrace the religion not only that, they also discovered that if they become Christian, the conquistadores, the soldier, would not would be less abusive. <laughs> less abusive, <laughs> meaning somehow compared to those who were who refused Christianity, they are a fair game. The the meaning the, they are target, they are they are subject to war and conquest, uh, pacification program. But if a community, a set, a, a indigenous community, eventually became Christian. Somehow the somehow the abuser seems to be you know they realize that it's it's better rather than so it's more of a transactional transactional kind of uh, arrangement so from from resistance eventually they I would say they learn to submit they learn to you know I don't want to use the word surrender but it's a form of submission. Submission to the Spanish authority, and uh, I would say uh, accepting Catholicism. And in uh, some in, uh, some of your essays, you talk about the different kind of images of Christ between yes. the colonial Christianity and the more hybridized Christianity. Could you tell us a little bit about yeah. the differences? Yeah. So the actually the mission the, the the missionary introduced the image of Santo Niño. This is the baby Christ. The, uh, the the child Christ, Antonino, uh -huh. the child Christ. You can see that it's a very popular icon image of Christ, the baby Christ. And then you have the the black Nazarene or the Santo Inchero, meaning this is the crucified Christ, the Christ black and hanging on the on the cross. Okay, so this became and the dead Christ, uh, dead meaning the one dying inside the tomb, but not not. Uh, without the without the the the, the meaning so so these are the images of Christ and and somehow these images of Christ if you see it's a child vulnerable see the hanging Christ uh, again meek and weak and defeated and dead meaning somehow 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 they use these images and these images became popular to the Filipinos maybe because it. The Filipinos learned to identify with these images, the vulnerability of the child, the suffering of the Filipinos under you know colonial oppression, then somehow the experience of that that is a is a is a, is, is always inevitable in a, in that kind of situation um, and the missionary. So the somehow the, the 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 message of that images is that 
you know, it's better for you to accept your lot and your suffering. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like Jesus. Uh, if you're a baby Jesus, then you just accept. If you're vulnerable, accept it. If you're suffering, accept it. Okay. If you're dead, there's a place in heaven for you. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting because uh, right now you know you've told us about the the images of Christ from the colonial Christianity side, right? There's this uh, there's this infant baby who's just basically helpless and dependent upon everyone else. Um, there's a a weak suffering Christ hanging um, on the cross, hanging on the cross, um, and then there's a dead Christ, and those are the images of of Christ from the colonial Christianity. And <clears throat> but those weren't the only images of Christ that emerged over time. So um how were they countered and what kind of images did we see emerge with a more hybridized Christianity? Okay, there was an interesting image during the revolution of 1898. Uh this is an image of the you know are you familiar with Madonna image? Not the singer, huh? <laughs> it's it's Mama Mary, Mother Mary. Okay. With a small child, right? Uh, Mary and uh, a, a little uh, a child uh, with Mary. So that's mm-hmm. Jesus and Mary. Now uh, this is also pop, uh, this is also a, an image that is so that seems to be uh, popular also in the Philippines. But during the revolution of 1898, 1896, and 19, 1898, and even you know there was an image where Jesus was carrying the uh, child Jesus was carrying a bolo. A bolo is, uh, what's the right term? Uh, bolo, it's it's a machete. <laughs> yeah, a machete, yeah. Yeah, a machete. Uh, he was holding on to that. Uh, that that's wasn't that's my kind of baby Jesus. I like that baby <laughs> Jesus. Uh, and, and, what, and there was also an image uh, of Jesus that became popular. Uh, especially in 1898, where um, Jesus uh, driving the, uh, uh, turning the table upside down, uh, driving the merchant, uh, the so-called angry Christ. Okay, so you, and 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 this, but you know, though this image became popular in in 1896 and 1898, uh, because of the Passion Mahal. Uh, Pashon Mahal, uh, because the Bible was not available, right? So you might ask the question, where did they get this, uh, these images of Christ? Uh, how come that they were able to draw an image of an angry Christ, draw an image of a, of a resurrected Christ? Uh, where, or they have, or they knew about the image of an ascended Christ, rise, a, a, a rise, a Christ, uh, going back to heaven, ascension. How? Where did they get those images if they don't have access to the Bible? The Bible was a pro- forbidden, forbidden book. Remember that. <laughs> and the mass was spoken was 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 in Latin. So yeah. where did they learn all this this story about Jesus? Because you will be surprised they were so familiar with the story and and they learn about it because of the Passion Mahal. Passion Mahal is a is a you know, it's a kind of a a chanted story uh, about the life of Jesus Christ, but the story it's chanted for forty days nonstop, oh, wow. part of the celebration of the Lenten season, and it is sung. It's sung or chanted for you know during the for forty days during Lent, Lenten. 
problem from Ash Wednesday, they would start to know. And, and the, the content of that story is actually from the creation story, from the birth, from the call of Mary. Uh, and there's some quotation from the Magnificat. Uh, it was written by a missionary Catholic priest, but mm. he, he wrote it in a vernacular in Filipino. So, and they sang and the Filipinos would chant it during Lent. And this is how the, and surprisingly, many of these images are actually found there. So somehow the natives eventually learn, yes, they identify with, with the suffering, dead and child Christ, but they knew also something about a child, uh, about Christ who turned the table upside down. A Christ were very critical of the powerful, critical of the Pharisees, critical of kings, King Herod. They knew about those stories that we find in the Bible, but they did not have any access to the Bible. And they knew Christ who identified with the ordinary. They knew Christ who identified with the ignoramus, the ignorant, the uneducated. They knew Christ who, 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 who was like them. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about how, you know, there were contradicting images of Christ um, that, that have been shared and emerged in the context of the Philippines. And that was, yeah, I, that's really helpful for us to kind of be thinking about how different images of Christ um, suggest different ways of being in the world, uh, mm -hmm. especially in a neocolonial uh, context like the Philippines. So if, if we could fast forward a little bit to the emergence of the Christians for National Liberation. Mm. Could you, to kind of wrap this conversation up, because in our next conversation, we're going to dive into the theology of struggle, which mm. if, if I'm correct, doesn't the theology of struggle kind of emerge in the 80s or the 70s? Uh, formal, uh, I mean, it emerged in the early 80s okay. when the theology of struggle was actually coined. Okay, excellent. Okay. Yeah. Meaning when it was actually, when Filipinos started to, you know, theologians, Filipino theologians started to uh, find a, a, a name for the kind of theologizing that we are actually doing in the Philippines so that it would be a Filipino kind of theology, uh, uh, unique and distinct compared to the Latin liberation theology or the political theology that you find in, in, in the U.S. or the black theology that you uh, in Europe and the black theology that you find in, in, in the U.S. Uh, but, but it, but to say that it started in the eighties, I think that's not accurate because we were already doing the theology yes. struggle, uh, before so, we named so it, <laughs> before we, it was, we <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So perhaps it was like conceptualized, um, yes. officially and kind of consolidated in the eighties. So yeah, that'll be, that's what our next conversation is going to be about. But this has been an excellent kind of contextual introduction. Again, I know you could talk for days about both of these questions, right? The development of colonialism and neocolonialism and the counter struggles that have been waged and also the kind of historical development of Christianity. But to wrap this conversation up, could you introduce us to um, what is the Christian, Christians for National Liberation um, movement in the Philippines? The Christian for National Revolution started during pre-martial law, huh? before martial law uh, in the 70s. It was part of the emerging nationalist movement in the Philippines. When we speak of nationalist movement in the Philippines, it was an anti-colonial movement. So it's a claim, it's a, his, it's a continuation of the struggle against, you know, that started in 
1896, uh, the struggle against Spain continued again, the struggle against the United States, and the struggle continues. Uh, and in the, in the 70s, there were a movement, a strong movement uh, for nationalism uh, and for democracy. Uh, the Philippines was viewed as a neo-colony, meaning though we have a political independence, uh, the Philippines was, was still uh, dependent on on the powerful, rich, powerful country like the United States, uh, the for former colonial master. Though they are no longer the uh, you know directly controlling the Philippines, but indirectly they were controlling the United States was still in control of the Philippines. Uh, the fact that during the time we had the two biggest military bases used to be <laughs> mm. uh, that was the Angeles Pampanga, but because of Mount Pinatubo, the volcano forced the American to leave. The <laughs> look, <laughs> forced the American to leave. <laughs> forced the American to leave that base. That's the uh, biggest, uh, I think one of the biggest, uh, yeah, airfield and port. Uh, uh, it was part of the where the seven, uh, seven fleet would stay outside of, uh, of Hawaii and, and Jagosira, something like that. But it was, you know, but in the 1990s, we kicked and we closed down the, uh, we as the United States evacuated, but after the volcano erupted. So, Okay, but but that was part of the agreement. Uh, you know, we will will be we, the American will 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 no, will will give us our independence. They did that in July four. Uh, you know, that's your independence. So that's the date that they actually claim that they are giving us our independence. Nineteen forty-seven. Yeah. yeah, but we remain as a colony, and part of that arrangement is the parity agreement, meaning uh, you will have this. You uh, will still have this basis. You'll be protected by the United States uh, if you are attacked, but <laughs> but that would depend on the action of Congress of the United States. Uh, so there were several, but but we already have your we already have the basis here in the Philippines. So somehow it was not a fair deal. Okay, and out because of that, and remember that was also the height of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And the Philippines, the basis was used. Uh, yes. And second, uh, American companies, American companies control a lot of the agricultural land. You have the Del Monte, you have Dole, uh, and major export product, agricultural products like coconut, uh, copra, coconut oil, sugars were exported to the United States based on the parity agreement. So it was a preferential treatment. So many Filipinos benefited in that arrangement, but also American businessmen benefited because of the tax preferential. So we were a colony, agricultural economy, providing cheap agricultural products, while we buy uh, products from the United States, imported products, which are quite expensive, medicine, iron, steel, uh, and and we become dependent uh, to the manufacturing goods that you have. Eventually, we we were we were able to manufacture those some of those not really manufacture assemble assemble some of your some of the products uh, toothpaste uh, some but they but most of the raw material uh, not raw material most of the elements needed the chemicals needed were all imported in the United States from the United States. 
So we were we were really a neo colony. We were dependent on the United States. Our economy were tied to the United States. There was actually an expression used by some economists: if the United States sneezes, uh, sneezes in the Philippines, we catch cold. Mm. <laughs> and then, and how the impact of the American foothold, I mean, control of the economy was really so. No, and eventually the. Filipinos, uh, the intellectuals, students, and some politicians realized that the only way that the Philippines can actually really, really develop okay, is to be fully independent from the United States, to put an end this dependency relationship with the United States. Okay? One is to remove the U.S. basis, to end the parity agreement, and charge our own genuine industrialization. So it was economic nationalism. And it was also a political nationalism in the sense that we would also charge our own independent foreign policy. So the spirit really driving this movement is nationalism that is anti-colonial, okay, anti-American, <laughs> anti-American uh, imperialism, okay. So that was the you no. Know, but there was also the spirit. There was also it was also motivated to to. To, to strengthen democracy in the Philippines, to make democracy really more participatory, to enable uh, <laughs> Filipinos to enjoy the basic fundamental rights, freedom of expression, not only the intellectual, but everybody, so that participation would be guaranteed. And, and out of this, different sectors started to organize. And the church, church people, you know, realized that the church was an instrument of colonialism. This was an acknowledgement that the church was a tool of the colonizer. It was used to pacify yeah, the Filipinos, Catholic and Protestant. The Protestant brought uh, the Protestant missionary introduced schools, uh, introduced a a, a, uh, a form of Christianity that you know that focuses on going to heaven. Uh, there's a nice place waiting for you there. A <laughs> uh, very privatized religion, uh, uh, pietistic. Our concern is the life in the church. Enjoy the singing of the hymn. We read thy Bible. We pray. We sing. Uh, but, uh, you know, should we get involved in politics? Should we quest Should we really in get involved in, in policy question? Uh, uh, somehow, that's not spiritual. <laughs> so you have this kind of theology, an otherworldly theology. And Christians were starting to uh, question, is this the kind of Christianity uh, that would, you know, Christianity where where it plays a the role to perpetuate the status quo? So, a group of Christians started to gather and, and eventually organized uh, what would be known as the Christian for National Liberation. It was an above-ground organization when it was organized. It was composed of Catholic and Protestant. Uh, so it was ecumenical. Okay? Um, and now, it would have been a different story uh, maybe if martial law, uh, no, martial law was not declared, because it would still be above ground. 
But when Marcos declared martial law in 1972, many of these nationalist organization and progressive organization became a target of, of the Marcos government. So they were forced to go underground. Okay, they were forced to go underground. Well, Dr. Agulon, this has been an incredible uh, contextual introduction to the history uh, of the life and the struggle within um, of the Filipino people. So thank you so much. And I'm really looking forward to diving into what theology of struggle is and how it engages the historical materiality of the Filipino people. And so, yeah, again, thank you so much. I appreciate you. And I'm looking forward to chatting again. Yes. Okay. Thank you.